What do you have to do if you want to be president? I'm Bernie Sanders. I'm running for president. I am a candidate for president of... I stand before you today to announce my candidacy. I am seriously thinking of running for president. No, and I, honest to God, I haven't made up my mind. More and more candidates are coming forward to run against Trump in 2020, and there's a familiar pattern. Release an inspirational video, maybe write a book, maybe hang out with the Obama bros on Pod Save America. Thanks for coming by. Start making appearances in Iowa and New Hampshire. Then there are policy proposals that have rocketed to the top of the agenda in the Democratic Party. Candidates are under growing pressure to back Medicare for All, a plan to finally introduce universal health care. But the other big idea is the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal came out to support the Green New Deal. There are also candidates already in the race who are not only endorsing this plan, but are also now co-sponsoring it. The fight against climate chaos is gaining momentum in the UK right now, too. A couple of weeks ago, thousands of school kids went on strike around the country to protest the lack of action on climate change by the adults in government. So, how would a Green New Deal actually work, both here in the UK and across the pond? What are the origins of the idea? And could it shape the race for the Democratic presidential nomination? It's the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this week's episode is a Green New Deal special. You're talking about zero carbon emissions, no use of fossil fuels within 12 years? That is the goal. As well as hopefully having a bright future in the US and around the world, the idea of a Green New Deal has a long history here at the New Economics Foundation. And we've got the perfect group of people here today to look at the origins of the idea and where it's going next. First up is Anne Pettifor, who's director of Prime Economics and one of the co-authors of the Green New Deal report published by Neff in 2008. Hello, Anne. Hi. We've also got the boss, Miata Van Buller, chief executive of the New Economics Foundation. Welcome. Thank you. And on the line, joining us from across the pond is Waleed Shahid, communications director of the Justice Democrats, who also worked on the campaign to elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Hi, Waleed. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so let's kick off. We're going to start with you, Anne, if that's okay, um, and the origins of the Green New Deal. So where did the idea come from and what did the original proposals involve? Well, the idea originates, of course, with Roosevelt in the New Deal Mm of the 1930s. And then the term was picked up by Thomas Friedman and some other American journalists. But it wasn't until 2008, 2007, actually, that a group of us got together here associated with NEF, um, people like Colin Hines, Andrew Sims, Jeremy Leggett, who ran a solar energy company, Tony Juniper, who headed up Greenpeace at that time, Charles Secret, who headed up Friends of the Earth and so on. And we all got together, together with Jeff Tiley, who's an economist and a monetary theorist, and we started to pull together um, a, a programme, a report. It's not brilliant, it's not at all comprehensive, mm-hmm. but it just laid out the principles that we needed to change the financial system in order to be able to change and transform the ecosystem and that that would lead to high levels of investment which would be job-creating and that would be good for the world as we substitute labour for carbon. Okay, so we're going to have a bit more time to dive into the, the nitty-gritty of, mm. of the, um, the Green New Deal 
But why, in your opinion, was it that it kind of didn't really take off in 2008? Well, the point is we published it in July 2008, which was before Lehman's Brothers collapsed. Mm -hmm. And so the country was sort of overtaken by it. It was really interesting because we thought the crisis began in August 2007 when interbank lending froze. But in reality, the public and, you know, the commentators had thought, well, the, the central bankers have got this all under control. So it was all kind of trundling along until Lehman's in, in September 2000, October 2008. And then everyone is just crushed by the crisis. Mm. And I think the crisis took over and then it morphed into an unemployment crisis and that morphed into austerity and that's morphed into a political crisis. And so mm. we took eye off that ball. Okay. Kind of swept away. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing for me and the thing that's so kind of inspiring when I go back to the original uh, Green New Deal was that it, for the first time, did that thing of seeing that there was a climate crisis that was coming that had to be addressed and then there was an economic crisis that had to be addressed. And it brought the two things together and said, actually, we want fundamental change that addresses these twin challenges. And I think that's the thing that has to kind of carry through because that was the point where actually we brought the environmental movement together with the social justice movement and said actually this is part of the same problem and you need change mm -hmm. to deliver it and for me I think the reasons why it didn't kind of uh, take off was you know it was a document that came up with some ideas um, and a kind of policy platform ambitious bold but it didn't it didn't, and it didn't pretend to be at the time, try to mobilise a movement against, around it. Mm -hmm. So you had a kind of document, you had ideas, you had some principles, but actually the groundwork, you know, the, the mm. army of people that could come behind this thing mm. to say, this is the change we want and this is how we make it happen, we didn't have. And I think that's the thing you absolutely have to get right this time. Yeah. And I think the second thing was the times. Um, in some respects, you know, you needed the urgency of, we've got 10 years to sort this out, guys, mm -hmm. um, which is what we have now. But also, in, we needed the pain of 10 years um, mm -hmm. of austerity, 10 years from the financial crisis, where I think the sort of fundamental failures of the economic system, the fact that it's broken down, the fact it's not serving people, it's not working for people, the frustration with the system, I think you needed all of that to create the conditions when people mm. look at the ambitious, they look at the transformative and they say, do you know what, this is no longer something that's pie in the sky, and this is necessary now. Mm. So I think that's the thing, it's the times and the movement, and yeah. that's the moment that we're in now. I'm just conscious that I forgot to mention Caroline Lucas MP, mm. the Green MP, and the Green Party, because they get a bit cross with us when we leave them out, <laughs> because they, of course, were trying to mobilise around this in ways that certainly the Labour movement wasn't. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Walid, I'm going to bring you in. We've spoken a little bit about the perhaps the time is now for the Green New Deal as opposed to uh, 10 years ago. I would love it if you could talk a little bit about how the Green New Deal got so high up the agenda in the US so quickly. What's the story there? Yeah, so when uh, Justice Democrats initially recruited Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to run, a lot of the candidates we were talking to were interested in a kind of mass mobilization to solve the systemic crises in our country regarding skyrocketing inequality, the climate crisis, and kind of deepening structural racism in the country, especially after the election of Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was, uh, you know, after Alex, she, she ran on a Green New Deal, it was a major part of her campaign. And then after she won, um, there was a movement called the Sunrise Movement, which was interested in doing a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office basically criticizing her for lacking, uh, you know, Democrats won the House in the midterms. She was asked what her policy agenda would be in the in the coming term. She said, 
um, climate was not going to be in the agenda and that she was going to pursue a bipartisan marketplace of ideas, her <laughs> quote, um, alongside the Republicans. And so after some pushback, the next day she said she was going to restart a select committee that she had started in 2007 to investigate the harms caused by climate change. So the Sunrise Movement reached out to Justice Democrats and AOC's office and what AOC basically gave them in return was, hey, why don't you, instead of doing the thing that activists tend to do, which is just, you know, say, no, you're bad, you're terrible, we hate you, why don't you give Nancy Pelosi something to uh, say yes to? And that's where, you know, very quickly the first draft of the Green New Deal um, came about, which was to create a committee in the in the House of Representatives to answer the IPCC's call, the UN's committee on um, that recommended a 12-year uh, rapid transition off fossil fuels and toward a 100% clean and renewable energy economy. So originally the Green New Deal was just a, was supposed to be a committee that would draft a plan to address the UN's recommendations. So it just skyrocketed from there in terms of, you know, having this really phenomenal um, spokesperson for the policy, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, linked up with a social movement, the Sunrise Movement, and then a kind of political arm that's been doing the electoral stuff and the press stuff, um, which is Justice Democrats. So the synergy of those three parts, alongside talking to lots of economists internationally and in America, um, has mm -hmm. been, you know, has really pushed it to the forefront. Okay, so it would definitely seem to support your kind of hypothesis, Miata, that we you need both the ground game and, and the ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what's so exciting. Um, and, you know, credit uh, the, an idea that started here and we just didn't get the kind of impetus that we wanted. Suddenly, uh, you know, across the Atlantic, it has such energy. And I think it mm. is about the movement that has been mobilized around it. And, and it speaks to the times, you know, that sense that, there is something that's so broken, both in terms of, you know, the threat to our planet, but also our economic system, that it requires unprecedented action. And this, this mobilization of a skill that we haven't seen in peacetime, I think, is something that can capture the imagination of people. And I think it resonates because people are like, yeah, there's something that's kind of not, yeah. <laughs> there's something mm. not right. Mm. I think we mustn't forget that the Americans have done more than just mobilise. They're also preparing a programme, a practical programme of transformation, mm. you know, projects. They've gone probably further than we've gone on mm. that. I mean, there's lots of work happening here in Britain, but it's happening, you know, at the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton or it's at the Grantham Institute at the LSE or it's sort of scattered. It's not brought under one umbrella. Mm. And I think that is a problem because it's about... Once you've mobilised the finance, once you have the political support, you've got to deliver projects, basically. You've got to transform your energy supplies and make them uh, more energy efficient and, mm. and, 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 and so on. So I think they're ahead of us from that point of view. Mm. Wally, talk to us more about how, how much further ahead of us you are. Um, how many Democratic presidential candidates are, are backing the New Deal, kind of roughly at the moment? Well, nearly every presidential candidate who is trying to brand themselves as a progressive has uh, endorsed the Green New Deal and co-sponsored the resolution um, in Congress. So that includes Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar. Those are some of the leading candidates um, for the presidency. Mm. And um, it's kind of insane. I mean, just a year ago, Alexandria was a bartender working in the Bronx, and now she's yeah, creating the policy insane. that the Democratic Party is running on. Wow. Um, and just a follow up for, for you on the kind of, uh, what do you think are the, the key kind of similarities and differences between the original Green New Deal that you spoke to and the version that's being backed in the States at the moment? Well, I think there's a lot in common. I mean, ours was 
you know, my, my particular contribution was on the financing of it and about using the monetary system to make it happen. Where we were, went wrong was we thought that there would be peak oil. We thought that we had, did not predict fracking. And so we thought that this was, that we were approaching peak oil and that we'd have to prepare for having less oil. Well, how wrong we were. So quite a lot of the effort went into that. And of course, that isn't an issue anymore. But also I think there's no doubt about it. The Americans have gone a lot further because they've had this head start, because they have the energy and they have the drive to do it. Okay, so uh, another one for you, Waleed, on this. Can we have a quick chat about the detail of the US version of the Green New Deal, just leading on from what Anne was just saying? So earlier this month, uh, Alexandria Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that is so hard to say. You really nailed it, Waleed. Um, and Just Senate, AOC. Yeah, AOC. Is, are we all okay with that? Okay, AOC. Thank the Lord. Okay. Um, so earlier on this month, AOC and Senator Edward Markey introduced a resolution setting out a bit more detail about the, the deal. So what are the key things that we need to know about it? So um, it's a 10-year plan to achieve net zero carbon emissions that would guarantee everyone, every American, a job who wants one and provide targeted investment in low-income communities and communities of color. So there's, you know, 14 different projects and different kinds of parameters for those projects. But it, you know, basically means upgrading every building and home in the United States and every mode of transportation in this country, the entire power grid to achieve maximal energy efficiency. And that is, those are all huge undertakings that within those have so many projects with them. But the goal is to meet 100% of the demand for power in the U.S. with clean, renewable, zero emission sources. That's in line with the scientific consensus on climate change. And, you know, using this moment and using this crisis to also address the deepening crises around inequality and systemic racism in this country. So um, the original New Deal famously or infamously um, was deliberately excluding uh, many people of color, many women, many migrants from participating in the kind of uh, social contract that was being written then. And what that's led to over time is that uh, white Americans own 10 times as much wealth as African Americans due to th- those programs. And so there's a, lo- there's a big emphasis in AOC and Senator Markey's uh, Green New Deal around, you know, fixing the harms of, of past policies that were not just and what were not equitable. So mm. that's the basic idea is that, you know, we could have nice things in the United States if we came together and actually uh, took on a handful of fossil fuel billionaires and the politicians they employ um, and created a society of plenty. There's enormous opportunity, enormous wealth in this mm-hmm. country. Um, and we just lack the political will to actually do something about it because there's there's corporate interest standing in our way. Well, you know what I'm going to ask ask you. How is it going to be paid for? Is there a ballpark figure? Let's talk. Let's talk cash money. So the Green New Deal is a very expensive program, um, but I don't know if we should think about it solely as an economic cost. It's also a solution to inequality in many ways. So, can we pay for it? Uh, yes, easily. I mean, the Green New Deal can be funded. The exact same way we paid for the original New Deal and for the arms mobilization for World War II in this country, which is what the UN has actually cited as the only modern equivalent for the kind of quick mobilization that's ever been done to transform an economy is what the US did under World War II. Um, And what happened under the New Deal, under World War II, under the Iraq War, under the bank bailout, was that Congress authorized the expenditures given an eminent threat to our nation and the Treasury mm-hmm. spent the money. Over time, that spending is uh, will be financed through you know a mix of borrowing and higher taxes, especially on the ultra-rich. But 
Whether or not we need to raise taxes to pay for the Green New Deal is a little bit beside the point. We should definitely raise taxes on the ultra-rich, but there are ways to finance it that are the exact same ways that, like I was saying before, the Iraq War and the bank bailout were financed in this country, which is that Congress spent the money. And mm-hmm. over time, mm-hmm. you know, everyone knows that powering the uh, renewable energy revolution will also create lots of economic growth that will increasingly allow the Green New Deal to pay for itself over time. Okay, Anne, what do you reckon? I mean, I think there's a step preceding that, preceding the authorization by Congress of expenditure. And that step was the step that um, Roosevelt took on the night of his inauguration. He began to dismantle the gold standard. And the gold standard, you have to understand of it as a a globalized financial system. The, The existence of the gold standard was to enable capital, mobile capital, to move around the world and to maintain the value of its assets across the world through the gold standard. On the night of his inauguration, he began to discuss with his advisors uh, how to uh, withdraw gold from uh, the financial system, from the banking system, to put it in the Fed and to, in future, um, simply allow the American economy to act as backing for the currency and the value of the currency. And that was an incredibly radical move because what it did was to render Wall Street, uh, if you like, a little less aggressive than it was Mm. with the power of the gold standard. I mean, Wall Street tried to reinstate, were very angry about it and threatening and so on. And Roosevelt stood his ground. And for me, that is absolutely critical because right now we have a globalised financial system. Capital markets decide on how much financing a government can have. And more importantly, they decide at what rate of interest governments can borrow effectively. Now, governments can manage that through their central banks, but you know most of their borrowing is in the international capital markets and so the price of that borrowing is quite high so for me what's really vital to this is that first of all the global financial system has to be subordinated to the interests of a the domestic economy mm. and b society uh, as indeed all markets should be all markets should be regulated and managed by society in the interests of society and and until we do that, it's going to be really quite hard. So, um, and, but I'm just so awestruck. And all of the histories about Roosevelt just elide over that episode. Mm. I mean, there's a review in the in the London Review of Books this week of a biography of Roosevelt in which he, he, they say that on the Monday morning he rescued the banks. Uh, he didn't rescue the banks. He took gold out of the banks and transferred it to the Fed and demanded that citizens hand over their gold. And that altered the control that the global financial markets had over the financial system. So for me, that's the, the most radical bit we have to get get a grip of. Mm. Yeah, and, and the thing I'd add is that, you know, people always go to the question of um, what will it cost? Um, mm. In the end, you know, we spend billions on things. It's a question of political will and priority. Um, and actually, if you think about, just think about fiscal policy, I mean, the amount of space or government spending, you know, the amount of capacity we have to spend more if we wanted to. Mm. Uh, you think about what we call monetary policies, so essentially uh, our, how, how our sort of central banks work and how the financial markets work. So, you know, our central banks have kind of created billions, 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 billions that have kind of gone into um, other financial institutions. None of it has had an impact on the real economy. Uh, none of it has been strategic in any way. Imagine if they were trying mm. to use that money to drive the green transition. Imagine if they were pumping it into green services, goods, 
and the change that we could have achieved through that. So we have the levers, we've got the mechanisms. If we want to use them, it's a question of political will, it's a question of priority, and it's about actually flexing the things that we have mm. and being clear that this is the central purpose. I think that's what's missing. We're doing a whole load of stuff, but, you know, if our planet goes down with us, that is it. Like, this should be the central purpose, which means that we should be thinking about all the tools that we have as both governments, but also yeah. as citizens in order to make that thing happen. Mm. And do you, th- I mean, it might be a bit of an obvious question, but do you think it's possible that it could happen here right now in the in the current climate and with Brexit coming up and all these kind of things? Is the Green New Deal a possibility? Well, I think it is. The fact is that the global financial capital markets are actually heavily dependent on government debt as collateral. So BlackRock, for example, which has got $6 trillion of our pensions in in an asset fund, don't want to hold that in cash. They want to hold that in an interest-bearing asset, and that's that's debt, that's public debt. Mm -hmm. And so my worry is that we don't recognise that that's exactly what you're talking about, Mia, to the leverage that we have. You know, we ought to say to them, you may have access to the Bank of England's resources, including you may have access to the the government's uh, debt issuance and and buy that government debt, but on terms and conditions. We know this is a valuable asset. We know that it's going to earn you interest over the next 20, 30 years. We are therefore setting terms and conditions for you to use this for your purposes, which are mainly for self-enrichment. So that's one point I want to make. So so that, you know, I I agree with you very much that we have leverage over these outfits and we just don't recognise the power. But secondly, it really is difficult to tax Amazon, to tax Starbucks, to tax all these Facebook, Google. Mm -hmm. You know, they're out there. They're beyond the reach of regulatory democracy. And some of the funding we need to repay the borrowing, because to keep the economy in balance, we'll have to repay the borrowing, we must get from taxation. And if, if, you know, large swathes of the economy are evading taxation or beyond the tax authorities, then that's not possible to do. So those are the two big mm. tasks we have to face. But again, I think it takes people are pretty fed up, aren't they, in this mm, country? Absolutely. I think Brexit is about people saying we're tired of those big corporations, you know, grabbing their share of the cake and leaving crumbs for us. Mm. Absolutely. And you know, the reason why I'm more hopeful uh, that it can happen is because of Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find it kind of fascinating slash depressing that uh, we had this vote and it was uh, shocking and awe-inspiring, but there was a clear message, which was the huge space of the country wanted change. Um, and then our political class has spent two years talking about the ins and outs. And it's like, no one is talking about the fundamental issues. Like, you know, we've still got wage stagnation. Mm-hmm. Huge parts of the country are suffering from austerity as public services crumbled. People are feeling squeezed and yet... Nothing. It's, mm. It doesn't even make the political weather. And so at some point, there has to be a reckoning. And I think that when we get to the point, whatever we end up doing with Brexit, there has to be a conversation about what is the new social contract? Because the old one's broken. Mm. It's absolutely broken. And people feel it. And they felt it when they expressed that desire for change in that referendum. And so we've got to go back to that question. And that is the opportunity. Because at that point, you say, how do we change this thing? Mm. And, you know, we change it for social justice reason, but my God, we've got a climate problem that will be an environmental yeah. problem for us. You mm. know, the environmental problem that will be an economic problem. You know, for me, 
I don't just see the environmental piece as something that's here in a green box. It is fundamental to social economic justice. Mm -hmm. So we've got this problem and there will be a moment where the public are like, what the hell have you people been doing? And what are your answers? And that's our opportunity to talk about And after the crisis, there was, the left really didn't have anything to say. Mm -hmm. We were Mm -hmm. stunned by the, as stunned as the establishment was by the crisis. And I think... That's you're absolutely right. We've got to get our ducks in a row, our policies, our projects lined up for that moment when, when the whole thing turns. And it will turn. You have to look at the fall of the Berlin Wall. You have to look at what happened in apartheid South Africa. You know, mm. things I never thought that apartheid would collapse as quickly as it did. And it's all well, I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, fascinating and depressing in your language is what we specialise here, specialise <laughs> in here on the Weeks Economics Podcast. But I definitely think we hear a lot of this language about being in this Gramscian moment of the interregnum and very little about... I'm sorry, the producer was not happy with me saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, yes, fair enough. But every guest that comes on says we're in this Gramscian moment and, the, you know, <laughs> the old is dead and the new is yet to be realised and we have to seize the day. And then I'm like, cool, what should we do? and they're like we don't know um but you know so it's really nice to be talking about as you say ideas um and things which seem not completely beyond beyond our our reach um to make that happen i i want to talk for a second about unions just to go in that direction for a little bit so walid if i can just ask you there's a lot of language in ocasio's resolution aimed at keeping the unions in the fold about union protections and fair wages and stuff like that but some of the unions have come out against it so i want to start with you walid in terms of what's the problem uh, that unions have with the green new deal in the u.s and then to open up to anamiata about that here um sure so the labor movement or the union movement in the United States has been under a 40, 50 year assault. And that tends to make a lot of unions in the United States very risk averse. Um, I think that, you know, they no union endorsed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign against Joe Crowley, for example. And because in part there, they tend to be afraid of uh, shaking up the system. There's lots of reasons why union members are afraid of losing the very benefits they have fought so hard to protect that are constantly under attack. And so while there were some unions that came out swinging against the Green New Deal, some of the more conservative labor unions, there were also unions like SEIU 32BJ, which represents um, custodians, janitors, and um, security guards who supported the supported the resolution, mm-hmm. um, and and there you know the the resolution was drafted in conversation with economists, in conversation with climate and environmental groups, in conversation with progressive organizations like ours, and then also in conversations with labor unions. And so there was a little bit of a negotiation around those things to make sure that at least significant amounts of labor unions saw themselves represented in this. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, the labor unions, um, despite you know having been crushed over the past few decades, still hold essentially a veto over where the Democratic Party goes. And so there, mm-hmm. there was a little bit of pushback on some of the concessions that were made to the labor movement, but um, from and from more like radical environmental groups. But at the end of the day, um, this is a consensus policy that the vast majority of progressives are supporting in the United States. Okay. Unions, Anne Miata, what do you reckon? Well, I mean, I at our meeting last week, we had this really disturbing discussion with, with someone who is not in an energy union about what had happened at the Trade Unions Congress, which is n- namely that the energy unions, those working in nuclear power, coal and so on, said, this is our problem. You're taking our jobs away. We want to determine policy, not you. And so they're not looking at it 
in in the way of saying, look, the Green New Deal will allow the seas to rise, the seas of employment to rise, the tide to rise, and for all ships to sail. Mm -hmm. Instead, they're saying, it's all going to be in our ship, and we we want to run that ship, and we don't want anyone else to get involved, because you're not working in the energy sector. So we're already getting a sort of defensiveness here, which we have to break through, because... Because the great thing and what's wonderful about the way the Americans are framing this is that it, you know, guarantees work for everybody. And there's got mm. to be, and for me, we have to substitute labour for carbon. You know, we, and I like to put it in this way, that we'll have to grow our own green beans. We won't be able to import them by plane from Kenya. So we'll be doing a lot more physical work, but also creative work and caring work and educational work. And there's just no shortage of that which has to be done. I mean, I think we haven't yet managed to persuade the unions to to see the bigger picture, to see the seas rising. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting. So we are doing a bit of work at the moment with unions, uh, trying to ask the question of what does a just transition look like? So how do you transition towards a green economy in a way that's fair um, and the way that kind of guarantees living standards? And, you know, the fair challenge that they put to us is show us an example of industrial transition that's been successful. Because remember the 80s, and we remember huge communities being decimated that are still suffering from it. They still haven't recovered. So you sit sit here and tell us that we need to do this, all this transformational stuff, but we don't have an example of this happening. Now, for me, the answer, and I think that's a legitimate criticism, and I think for too long the kind of debate has been on the kind of environmental side, we're like, we absolutely must drive this change, it's urgent, and we're not really talking about the real life impact will have on people mm-hmm. and then the unions are like well you know we, we, we get it but actually this is people's jobs it's their yeah. family's kind of pay package that we're trying to protect and we kind of need to bring the two things together and for me the way that we do that is to kind of shift the conversation from the abstract because if you talk about you know the green new deal in the abstract or you talk about the just transition in the abstract it's quite hard to bring mm. people together you go into a place and say well actually if we fundamentally want to transform this place if we had to kind of close down this coal fire station but we wanted to create new types of industry what does it look like and you get Mm. the relevant people around the table and say how do we do this together and how do we do this in a way that is that bakes in a vision of this community where do you want to get to and actually how can we build it into our plan and that's a bit of work that I think is missing and that's a bit that we're sort of trying to do but I think once you start getting into the nitty-gritty and you get people bought into well you know we all want something better than what we currently have how do we get there Mm. And how do we bring these two dual objectives together and you get people bought into that? I think that's the way you break the impasse. Mm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, uh, I mean, if you work in a coal mine or a refinery or some part of fracking infrastructure in the United States, like that is the only those are the only jobs in town in large parts of the country. Mm. I think what's interesting is that, you know, despite the fact that Texas is the largest oil state in the country, it's also one of the largest renewable energy states in terms of wind and solar. So it's happening. But, you know, if you're there was a record number of union voters who voted for Trump in 2016. I think union, you know, I think there's a lot of unions that are afraid that what's happening is that part of the reason that that's happening is because you have a whole agenda being backed by the fossil fuel industry saying that people are going to take your jobs. And so in the abstract, it's really difficult to say, well, I'm, I'm ready to threaten my livelihood and go on for this project I've never heard of, which is, you know, transitioning the entire economy away from fossil fuels toward renewable energy jobs that maybe I don't see in my community. So it's a, it's a large Mm -hmm. task. And um, the Green New Deal has already been under assault for, you know, the past two months by Fox News, basically incessantly every day. So um, figuring out how to build that coalition is definitely something we're, we're attempting to do. 
Okay, so that kind of leads us nicely into previous thinking into how to stop climate change. So lots of other proposals before now have assumed that you have to incentivize the free market to make a transition um, away from fossil fuels and that the energy consumer would have to bear the cost of that. So are we saying then that that way of thinking has failed or, or does it still have its merits? Well, one thing that's happening is that uh, because this is, a, this is a really great example of what happens when progressives actually fight for something from a place of strength rather than fear. So it's actually Republicans who are putting forward a carbon tax as their solution to climate change in a way they've never done it in the United States before. And so they're having to actively debate climate and economic policy within mm. a progressive frame rather than simply denying that climate change exists at all. So, you know, I think carbon pricing or car a carbon tax in a, in a progressive way is something that could be considered as part of the Green New Deal, but it's not something that we're kind of leading with. We nobody thinks it's a solution. But there needs to be government-driven, public-driven ways to actually incentivize the renewable energy revolution and not just ways that end up doing what was done in France under uh, Macron, which is yeah. a carbon price that disproportionately hurts working families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah absolutely. And so I think the old uh, ways will take too long. Uh, I don't think they sort of speak to the urgency that, that, that we're currently seeing. I do think that government, the state has a catalytic role to play. And I think that's the thing that's changed, that actually you've got to kind of both the investment program, but also the reform program that has to sit alongside this is the thing that kickstart this. And then, but that's not enough. We've got to bend the markets towards this. Um, and that's about shifting the incentives. Uh, it's going to be quite a job to get companies, you know, the economy to kind of skew away from fossil fuel um, industries to something else. Um, and so I think you've got to have that combination of government policy, government intervention to kickstart this thing. But government policy and government intervention is not enough. We've got to get the markets to bend to the will of mm. the green economy. Um, and that that's the job. Mm -hmm. And that's happening already. I mean, here in Britain, I sometimes think, you know, the private sector is ahead of the government, mm. actually, because they're all worried about their long supply chains and into the future. They're thinking 30 years hence. You know, Japanese car manufacturers think 100 years hence. Mm, yeah. uh, but governments aren't thinking like that. And, and they are moving. I mean, my supermarket has banned plastic bags eventually, but the government hasn't really insisted that, that they should do so. You know, it's come so... Um, it's far too slow, and that's because there isn't a drive behind it. And I'm quite sure that entrepreneurs and capitalists would really just want to get down to doing business and making some money out of this if they can, and adapting. Mm. And there is a huge opportunity. And that, that was what was shown by Roosevelt, you know, when he insisted that the car interest, uh, industry be transformed overnight and turn mm. into basically building weapons for war, but, but just told them they had to do that, you mm. know, and they did. Okay, almost there. We are almost there. I want to talk about tactics quickly before we have a chat about what NEF's doing on the Green Deal. So what are some of the tactical lessons that we can learn from the US based on what Waleed said and, and what we all already know about what, how the Green New Deal is being put into practice there? And how do we build support for it in the future? I think how we frame this and how we communicate it is so important. I don't think that those of us who are sort of deep into the economics of it, are the greatest communicators. But that has to happen. And I'm afraid you do have to have a sort of leadership figure. You do have to have someone that goes out there and in the way that Alexandria has. 
But the question is quite how we do that. And then the movement has to come together. One of the great grievances I have about the Green Movement is that it's so fractured, it's so atomized, it's so concerned with I individual behavior change or B community change, you know, recycle, reuse, and that stuff. And not it doesn't have a cohesive enough. I mean, that is the joy of the Green New Deal, is that it is a cohesive program that people can get under the umbrella and do their thing under the umbrella, and it can hold them together. Because the Green Movement in this country has prided itself on being, you know, atomized and fractured, really. And that, that has to be overcome. Yeah. I mean, for me, the sort of the three take home kind of messages, um, and it'd be brilliant to kind of hear the messages, Willie, that you'd kind of give back to us, but ambition. So the thing that kind of slaps people in the face is like 10 years, you want to do this over 10 years? Exactly, we need to do this over 10 years. But I think that focuses the mind and yes, kind of pulls a lot of criticism because people are like, you can't possibly achieve it. But actually, when you look at the science, this is what the science is telling us we need to do. So ambition is the first thing. I think the second thing is it's got to be more than a piece of paper. You've got to galvanise the movement. And for us, you know, the hope is that we've got a generation of young people that are like, enough is enough. You know, I was really inspired by the kind of climate uh, march because they were saying, this is our planet and mm. you guys are messing it up. Mm. And actually trying to mobilise the next generation who believe that we need to have change, who are going to have to deal with the consequences of this and use them as the kind of backbone for a bigger movement of people that saying enough is enough, we need something quite radical, for me is the sort of second thing. And then I think the third thing is, you know, Anne's point, we are far, the biggest risk to this is that lots of different people do lots of things and we don't come together and say, you know, there is this vision. That, that's the exciting, you just mm. need a vision that holds everyone together. Mm. You know, we know we need change. We know it has to be ambitious. We know it's got to bring these two, two challenges, the economic challenge and the kind of climate environmental challenge together. And we've got to challenge ourselves and we've got to do it at a scale and pace that we've never seen before. I think those three things are things that we can take away and they are the ingredients of potentially creating something that is transformative transformative here. Okay, so Waleed, in response to what we've been discussing about how this might work over here, I know that you're a communications guru. Uh, what advice would you have for us? What's worked for you? What tactical choices have you made when it comes to communicating the uh, GND? Well, I think a, lot, a large portion of that is who Alexandra is. I mean, she is a working class woman of color from the Bronx who does not come from the political establishment or the their networks. And the idea that a young millennial woman of color would be leading these ideas is so, um, it's just, you would never see that happen in the United States and U.S. politics. And so her platform, her message is really compelling because she can activate a whole, whole group of people who didn't see themselves engaged in politics, let alone in a fight for against climate change. So, you know, finding leaders, compelling leaders who can authentically speak to their communities, people who don't come from the established networks, and then who can narrativize the fight in terms of a kind of populist fight, like Alexandria is not afraid of taking on powerful corporate interests in our country, and she's not afraid of even taking on the leadership of her own party. Mm. She has picked open fights with, you know, in a, in a kind of moral way with uh, senior leaders of the Democratic Party, and those fights, you know, when they first happened, people thought she was nuts, that it was crazy to conduct a sit-in against the leader of your party one week after moving to Washington. Um, it turned out they were all wrong because climate change and the Green New Deal is the number one issue that Democrats are running on. They're being asked about in Iowa and New Hampshire for the presidential uh, primaries. And so being kind of unafraid and to take risks in that way is also a central part of the message. And then the third piece is just 
that the war that is being waged against, you know, corporate interests and conservative forces in our society is is every day. It's it's a constant battle for what the frame is on TV and which articles are being written on this and who what's what's happening on Twitter and what's being trickle down in terms of what communities are hearing on the ground, because as we all know, people get their news for oftentimes from the media. And so how the issues are being framed on the media is also important. So right now we're in the middle of strategizing to figure out how to take on the Fox News propaganda machine, which has covered, which is Fox News has covered the Green New Deal uh, three times as much as any other mainstream news outlet. And the propaganda war that's mm-hmm. being waged there is something that's difficult to deal with. And so um, yeah, and I, I just think that, you know, having a credible message, have, having a credible messenger and having this ability to wage a constant war that's every day um, and, you know, not back down is is really key. Okay. So to wrap up then, it would be great to hear about what is being done. So Miata, if you could talk about what's happening here at NEF. Yeah, so look, we're incredibly excited that this is back on the agenda, uh, 10 years from the original. Um, And for us, there's sort of a set of things that we want to do. We kind of want to capitalize on the momentum that's been created around this. Um, And for us, I think the the, the kind of missing piece of the puzzle is trying to kind of make this stuff real. Uh, So we want to basically go into some places and say, If we have an ambition to try to, you know, completely eradicate carbon from our economy in this time frame, how would we do this in this place? What does this look like? And actually, how can we get people signed up and bought up and excited about what this means and the vision it creates for particular places? And then to use that to go back to the original uh, Mm -hmm. Green New Deal and say, well, how would we then refresh this? Um, How do we make it relevant to the times, the challenges that people are facing now in communities across the country? And what does a radical plan look like? like that we could deliver and implement in the next 10 years. Um, And I think the final thing to say is this has to be bigger than any one organization. So for us, Mm -hmm. the the piece around how we galvanize the movement around this is really, really important. So we want to do the piece of kind of trying to work together with other organizations that are thinking about like the what. What does this plan look like? How do we do it? And how could we do it quickly? What? How do we generate the finances in order to make this happen? How are we trying to train people on the ground to make them respond? Like, what does the policy package look like? And we want to do that in collaboration with others and bringing in our kind of different strengths, but also working with organizations that can help us catalyze this movement um, that can mobilize people around this agenda so that we can kind of combine the demand and the pressure and the power for change with the ideas. I think if we bring the two together, and I think we do have a moment, you know, whatever happens with Brexit, there is a moment that is coming in this country where we have got to provide a different offer to the country. And for me, that's a huge opportunity for us to think about what does this thing look like? How do we set our sights high? And how do we get people mobilized around this and excited about the change that potentially could come? Yeah, I, I was. I know a lot of your listeners, if they are NEF fans, will remember the Jubilee 2000 campaign. Mm-hmm. You know. And the thing about Jubilee 2000 that it was also an umbrella. I remember when we came up with it, I was horrified. I didn't think it could in any way be meaningful and mobilise people. But it did become something. It became a goal to be achieved by a certain time. And what was extraordinary was that there were a range of organisations mobilised behind it. Some of them were NGOs, some of them were churches, some of them were the trade unions, others were the medical profession, and all of them. And we were all working to cancel the debt, basically, Mm. and to write off as much debt as we possibly could for low-income countries. And different groups had different roles to play, but we were all under one banner. Mm. And wherever the IMF and the World Bank around the world 
Jubilee 2000 would pop up, you know, in Australia or, you know, in Pakistan or in Germany or in parts of the United States. And they began to feel that we were this <laughs> huge, great movement, which, mm -hmm. well, we weren't really. Um, but we did have international links and we did all work together. But above all, we worked under one umbrella. Mm -hmm. And it was probably one of the most successful civil society movements there's been. So, I, you know, that's what's exciting about the Green New Deal is that it's a banner mm -hmm. that we can all get behind and do our thing. Because I think what Miata is talking about, you know, it's going to be very complex working out all the projects and programs for transforming different sectors of the economy. And I'm not, you know, not any one of us can do that. But together, behind a single banner, we can let the world know that we know where we're going and what we want to do. Okay. Lovely listener. Get under that umbrella. <laughs> oh, please can you give us some Rihanna to take us out, James? It's just got to happen. Um, so that is it on the Green New Deal for this week, but it sounds like it might be just the beginning. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, uh, Miata Fambula from the New Economics Foundation. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And Anne Pettifor from you. Prime Economics. Thank you. Uh, Waleed Shahid from Justice Democrats. Thanks so much for joining me. If people want to hear more from you or about JD, how can they do that? Um, well, they can sign up for updates at justicedemocrats.com. They can follow us on Twitter at Justice Dems. And yeah, those are those are the main ways. Amazing. Thanks so much, Waleed. We can say goodbye. Bye. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Uh, if you have enjoyed this episode, as always, please tell someone about it. You can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. We've got gifts, we've got memes, and we might even read it out. So please do let us know what you think. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield with help this week from Margaret Welsh and Fergal O'Dwyer. And we're brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. Thank you.